Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 139, Mazer Field, Blood Makes the Grass Grow. Members, especially members who've ever shopped at Target, please make sure that you update your credit card information on Amazon in order to stay current. And speaking of membership, did you know that there's a new Vikings review? And as usual, Jim and I are suffering through it, so you don't have to. Oh, History Channel, why do you hurt us so? Also, I'm working on a couple really interesting cultural members-only episodes that I hope to be releasing very soon. So yeah, members, update your Amazon accounts, and then update your feeds. And thanks again for supporting the community. All right, let's get going. Edwin, Osric, Ainfrith, Aidfrith, Cabwathlin, Sigebert, Egric. Following Hatfield Chase, we have seen a bloodletting of the aristocracy of Anglo-Saxon Britain of epic proportions. And we're only hearing about the very highest echelons. But how many thanes, eighthlings, and minor nobles would have lost their lives as well during these power struggles? If the life of Edwin is indicative of how these power struggles tended to go, it would not have just been the kings and their war bands who died. Their entire dynasty could find themselves in danger if a victor was feeling particularly ruthless. And that seems to have been rather common, since even Oswald, who was portrayed as saintly by Bede, was still a bit ruthless and dangerous to rival dynasties, if we read between the lines. And throughout all of this, a change was occurring. Not only did you have men calling themselves kings, but you had kings who were themselves sons of kings. There was a shift in how society was being structured. And actually, we can even see it in the use of words. See, the thing is that king is derived from an Anglo-Saxon term, kinning. And as you might remember, ing basically means scion of or child of. For example, aetheling means son of the noble line, with aethel meaning noble and ing meaning son of. So, son of the noble line. And with that in mind, we can see that kinning means son of the kin. Kin meaning the family or the people, basically. As a result, kinning is a pretty fascinating term, and it can be looked at a couple of ways either as the heir of the dynastic line, if you use kin in a very restrictive way, or, if you use a different translation, maybe the son of the people, the son of all of us. And that would be a very different way of looking at rule than how we generally look at it. But it probably would be much more acceptable to the people in the early Anglo-Saxon era, you know, before the entrenchment of dynasties. Though, if the use of kinning started in that more egalitarian tone, it seems to have shifted by this point in our story, because now you had power concentrating around families to such an extent that shifts in rule were resulting in dynastic purges. And actually, power was concentrating specifically around the men of those families, which is probably why we see these dynastic purges focusing on the male members of the line with the female members being able to escape, and in rare cases where we do hear about them being captured by their rivals, rather than being killed, it looks like they're generally forced into concubinage or arranged marriages. They were still seen as important, but not important the way men were. And that's probably because they weren't in leadership positions. Women could still wield power, as was the case with Raidwald's formidable queen, 
but it was indirect power, things like persuading the men in their lives. But it looks like at this point in our story, it was only the men who were allowed to directly lead. And even with the brutal purges, it looks like this power differential was still recognized. So what we're seeing is a small group of influential families, led by men, engaging in bitter power struggles that were resulting in bloodletting that primarily focused upon the men of their rival lines. The women were certainly suffering throughout all of this as well. So this was all pretty new for Anglo-Saxon Britain. But on the upside, due to the consolidation of power, a lot of the chaos was limited to specific families. After all, the more open societies of the early Anglo-Saxon era had largely vanished, and now we're in an era where we have a relatively small number of families dominating large swaths of Britain. And the more successful of their number were finding ways to further expand their position. Deira and Bernicia were combining into Northumbria. Mercia was absorbing the Middle Angles, with Penda placing his son, Peda, on the Middle Anglian throne. Another possible son of Penda, Merowal, was ruling over the Magenseta. And you have kings fighting over Lindsay, the kingdom, not the girl, though maybe the girl as well. And you had other kingdoms that were still sort of independent, but it was really unclear how long that would last with so many powerful kingdoms looking upon them hungrily. And those were just the kingdoms that we know of, and we know of woefully few kingdoms of this period. So how many minor kingdoms would have simply been lost to time during this war-torn era? How many dynasties were wiped out in order to bring more and more power under the control of the line of Ida, or Cherdich, or Ethelbert? And these kingdoms and dynasties that were being dominated, absorbed, or wiped out weren't minor, unimportant blips to be ignored. They weren't small groups without histories or traditions of their own. They had just as much legitimacy as the larger kingdoms that survived them. For example, Huissa might seem like a small kingdom, and it sits in the shadows of Mercia and the West Saxons. But it was anything but minor. They had their own dynasty, and members of that royal house ruled for five generations, though some do argue that they were initially placed in control of the region by none other than Penda following the battle for Cirencester at about 628. But however that family ended up in charge of Huissa, even after that region was brought firmly under the control of Mercia, that dynasty continued to rule as subkings well into the second half of the 8th century. And simply because they were a subkingdom didn't mean that they were destined to stay that way for all time. I mean, how many times do we see the balance of power shift with underdogs suddenly ending up in charge? The point is that we sometimes talk about the smaller kingdoms like they're mere satellites without anything significant. But that's because we have the benefit of hindsight and know which kingdoms will end up on top. And also, it's mostly the dominant kingdoms who ended up writing the histories. But if we learned anything from Hatfield Chase and Heaven Field, it's this. Anything can happen in this era, and there is no such thing as an insignificant kingdom or dynasty. They might not all be created equal, but small houses and small kingdoms could and did bring down significantly larger rivals. And as a consequence, this would have been an era of tremendous flux and fear. 
with even powerful kingdoms being brought low by motivated but relatively small war bands. Power was waxing and waning with alarming frequency. Kent was the most powerful kingdom in Britain, until it wasn't. East Anglia experienced the same thing. And as for Northumbria, they have really experienced the full extent of highs and lows of this period. And as scary as this time was, it was probably also a bit frustrating. This is the same time that we see all sorts of new rules being implemented by the church that forbid things like eating horse meat, which was an animal associated with Woden, and divination, for obvious reasons, and also dressing up like stags, which I think is just proof that the early clergy were a bunch of killjoys, and also carving wooden feet. Seriously, not even wooden trotters were allowed. And while cremation and animal sacrifice were already becoming rare, now they were becoming expressly disallowed. There were all sorts of traditions that were put on the banned list quite quickly. While other traditions, such as the east-west alignment of graves, started to become quite popular, though to be fair, there are also pre-conversion graves that use that same alignment, so it's hard to say exactly why it became much more standard following the conversion, but it did. And many of these rules were probably eagerly being adopted by the upper classes, because much like how the British elite looked back to their Roman past, the new Anglo-Saxon aristocracy was enamored by continental power and by Rome. And the church had ties to both. So that love affair with the Roman past certainly helps explain the incredible success that the church was beginning to have with the Anglo-Saxon elite. And we see it in the record. Augustine wielded incredible power by telling Aethelbert that he had come from Rome. And I'm sure that his successors took advantage of that same air of mystique and authority. And with this new fascination, and also with this concentration of power around dynasties, we're beginning to see the aristocracy use new ways to demonstrate their power. A leader was no longer important simply while he was alive. His dynasty was also important. There was something special about him and his blood. And once he died, he was still important. And we see that reflected in increasingly impressive burial monuments. While burial goods wane following the conversion, we still do see monuments being created proclaiming the power of these men. Even after death, when, obviously, they were no longer of use in the throne room or on the battlefield, Unless Unferth wanted to play a prank that was in really poor taste, I suppose. So things were changing, and people, many people, were dying. And with that in mind, let's talk a bit about someone who was responsible for some of those deaths. Penda. It's tough to see what was happening with him on a granular level. And that fog gives academics plenty of room to fight and offer competing theories. Which, of course... I'm going to talk about. Penda's backstory is largely unknown, and it really isn't until his fight with Edwin that he appears in the record. So that's where we're going to start. So some scholars argue that following Hatfield Chase, and definitely by the time of the war with East Anglia, Penda was ruling as the dominant king of Mercia, with his brother, Eowa, ruling underneath him as a sub-king. But others have claimed that it was a joint rule, and that Penda was simply the more warlike of the brothers. 
And still others have claimed that following Hatfield Chase, Penda was created king by Eowa, but he was a sub-king, and it was Eowa that ruled. And Penda was utilized more like a war leader. And that last one gets the most attention. One of the reasons for this theory is because of an odd statement by Bede that Penda's life, to paraphrase it, was a bit of a mixed bag. So to explain why he had a mix of luck, some have thought that he must have had some lows in the early part of his story before he really started to get going. Honestly, it's hard to say exactly what was going on there, but when I look at the competing theories, one thing that I find interesting is that it will be Penda's son, not the son of Eowa, who will go on to rule after the deaths of Eowa and Penda. And also, Bede's account of Eowa's death is a little ambiguous, which makes some scholars wonder if there was some sort of internal war that was going on there. But without specifics from Bede, it really is hard to say what he was referring to with his enigmatic statement regarding Penda's fortunes. The point is that scholars argue over whether or not Penda was always in charge of Mercia, or if that he and Eowa were in a bit of a power struggle in the Midlands for a while. And that really adds some depth for our story. While we have these interkingdom wars breaking out, and fights over the Middle Angles, and over Lindsay, and over Godothan, while all of this stuff was happening, it's possible that there were also internal struggles going on inside some of the kingdoms. And maybe one such struggle was happening inside of Mercia. And some scholars do believe that if such a struggle did occur, it's possible that, despite the gains made by Penda in battle against the West Saxons and the East Angles, that King Eowa was acting as the dominant king, and placed his kingdom in a subservient position to King Oswald of Northumbria. And that could account for why Oswald appears to have felt like he had a free hand to fight Godothan among other kingdoms. After all, if he didn't have to worry about Mercia, he could stretch out into other areas. And Oswald was certainly growing in power, and in many ways, it does seem like Mercia was allowing it. Meanwhile, in the south, the other major power in the region was gripped by tragedy in 640. After 24 years of rule, King Aidbald of Kent, son of the great Bretwalda, King Aethelbert, had died. And Aidbald's son, Erkenbert of Kent, became king, possibly with his brother, Ermenred, ruling eastern Kent as an underking. Maybe. Now that's really interesting because Erkenbert was one of the younger sons of Aidbald and Emma. So why did the throne go to him rather than his older brother, Ermenred? It's a fascinating blind spot. Something must have happened there. And many scholars believe that Ermenred did serve as a sub-king. So maybe, knowing that Ermenred would have been outraged at being passed over, Erkenbert decided to smooth things over and throw his brother a bone with the sub-kingdom of Eastern Kent. It's hard to say what was going on there, but what we can say is that clearly primogeniture wasn't set in stone for Kent. And this shift in power was significant, not just for the nobles, but also for the common people. Unlike his father, Aidbald, who was pagan for a time and even tried to marry his stepmother before converting, 
Erkenbert was much more zealous in his Christian faith. And Bede tells us that he demonstrated this by being the first Anglo-Saxon king to mandate the observance of Lent and demand that all pagan idols be destroyed. Think about that for a minute. I mean, it's one thing to mandate baptism. It's even one thing to say, hey, you're Christian, so you can't worship Woden anymore. But it's quite another thing to legally require images of the gods of your subjects' ancestors to be destroyed. Carvings and images that have probably been passed down for generations. That's something that would reach every level of society. And I imagine that it must have created waves within the Southern Kingdom. And the change in rule, as well as the probable religious waves, were probably a relief to King Oswald of Northumbria. Because although he was quite powerful in the North, he was still a bit vulnerable in the South. And there were still things that probably gave him ulcers when he thought about the kingdoms south of the Humber. For example, although Penda had killed the kings of East Anglia, Sigebert the monk and Egric the, uh, Egric, now there was a new king ruling that eastern kingdom, a man by the name of Anna. And Anna's sister, Sexbur, and hooray for the return of sex names, well, she had married the new king of Kent, Erkenbert. And that would have been, ugh, worrying for the northern king. It was nothing new that East Anglia and Kent were disinterested in Northumbrian rule, but now they had a dynastic link at the very top levels of their society. That's the stuff that alliances tend to be made out of. And it was probably giving Oswald a bit of heartburn. But on the upside, this marriage also created a point of conflict from within Kent, because it wasn't too long before King Erkenbert had sons with his Kentish princess. And I guess that wouldn't be too much of an issue, except for the fact that his older brother, the maybe King Ermenred, also had sons of his own. And even if both brothers weren't jointly ruling, though my guess is that they were, chances are that they both had hopes for their line. And the problem there is that internal issues with the crown tend to tack a bit towards zero sum. So it really is only a matter of time before these two start fighting. This dynasty thing, man, it might provide for slightly more stable transfers of power, but it really isn't without its drawbacks. And those drawbacks come out in stark detail when you have ambitious people in positions of power, or coveting positions of power. And it was probably things like this that were keeping Kent from growing even larger, because even with the brewing dynastic issues, they were definitely making gains and forming links with other rulers. Hell, even Merowal, the king of the Magansaita and son of Penda, was married to a Kentish princess, according to, well, at least according to Kentish sources. And while we're talking about matters hamstringing the acquisition of power, what about how they were going about conversion? Kingdoms all throughout the Germanic East were converting, but they were instituting different visions of Christianity. And those differing views and beliefs would have been most evident among the ruling classes being that they had the most access to the clergy. And the thing is that those are the same people who also have access to war bands and appear to have been rather interested in finding reasons to fight amongst themselves. So if you throw in a dose of my way is the one true way, it gets interesting pretty quick. 
So yeah, things are getting a bit complex between these powerful families, with intermarriages and political intrigue, religious unity as well as religious strife. And all of this stuff is getting rather tense thanks to the added issue that came in the form of the ambitions of powerful men, and the fact that those ambitions were often in opposition to each other. And the results of those conflicting objectives were catastrophic for some kingdoms. Consider what we've been seeing. For a while, the West Saxons were powerful. That is, until Kent challenged them and they fell into infighting. Following that, power shifted towards the southeast, with King Ethelbert of Kent, the church, and his Frankish allies being the big movers and shakers. And then Ethelbert died, and the church went into full retreat, and power shifted towards the pagan kingdoms of East Anglia and Northumbria though Northumbria itself was racked with an internal dynastic struggle that didn't end until East Anglia defeated Northumbria and put Edwin on the throne. And then it was East Anglia, under Raedwald, who reigned supreme. That is, until Raedwald died, at which point it was Edwin of Northumbria who was throwing punches, killing kings, and invading kingdoms, including the once powerful West Saxons. And his rule lasted for nearly two decades, until Mercia, North Wales, went to war and defeated the Northern Kingdom. And then North Wales looked like it might have been on the rise, and it went on a rampage throughout Northumbria, until Oswald returned and defeated the army of Gwynedd. So now Northumbria, under Oswald, was back on top. But when you look at the scope of it all, and Northumbria's position, nothing is guaranteed or predetermined. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that Kent was dominant. And as for Mercia, it was still quite powerful, despite Northumbria getting its groove back. And under Penda, the warbands of Mercia had shown that they were a force to be reckoned with, by defeating East Anglia and Wessex, two kingdoms that once had Bretwaldas of their own. Things weren't set in stone, but rather the East was still in a state of tremendous flux. While power was consolidating around individual dynasties, there was still room for those dynasties to gather strength. I think it's pretty clear that the ruling families of Northumbria, Kent, and Mercia all wanted to increase their power, and it was inevitable that their ambitions would end up leading to conflict. And it was at Mazer Field that we saw the outbreak of war between Northumbria and Mercia. Penda, along with his veteran warriors, was readying for battle with Oswald, who was probably drawing upon his sizable Northumbrian forces. Why? What started it? Tensions seemed to have been growing between the kingdoms. But what was the event that sparked the violence? Well... Bede doesn't tell us. No one does, actually, which sucks. And if we look at the way that Bede talks about the war, he just paints Oswald as the good guy and tells us that he was fighting for his country. But that doesn't really tell us all that much, does it? We already know that Bede was incredibly friendly to the Northern King, so we can't even be sure that he was entirely forthright. But even if he was, and Oswald was fighting for his country, what does that mean? In many regards, when we think about fighting for our country in a modern context, we think about defensive wars. The term gives the impression of repelling an invasion. 
But is that the lens that Bede was using? It's hard to say, but it's quite possible that Bede would have seen an aggressive war as fighting for one's country, if it was for a reason that he approved of. For example, what if Oswald invaded to force Eowa and Penda to submit to his rule and to the church? What if he invaded to kill the two pagan kings because they were gaining power and might threaten the Christian Northumbrian kingdom? Or what if he invaded to bring the heathen kingdom under the righteous Northumbrian rule and make Mercia a thing of the past entirely? All of these things might count as fighting for his country. So it's hard to say what exactly was going on there. And honestly, Bede might have just been whitewashing it too. On the other hand, it could have been a Mercian invasion. Mercia did appear to have ambitions regarding expanding their territory. However, if that's the case, then wouldn't the battle have taken place in Northumbria? Or Lindsay? Or, you know, somewhere in that border region? Where we've had so many battles so far? And yet, scholars generally agree that that isn't where it happened. But rather, the battle happened in Shropshire, at a place that's known as Oswestry, which in Welsh and English etymology translates to Oswald's cross and Oswald's tree, respectively. And the thing is that Oswestry wasn't in Northumbria, and it probably wasn't even in Mercia. It was almost certainly in the territory of Powys, which is in Wales. And that's a bit odd, but there you have it. And interestingly, once again, Mercia was not fighting alone. Much like at Hatfield Chase, the Kingdom of Mercia had decided to ally with the Welsh. Only this time, it was with the Kingdom of Powys and their king, Kynthelen. And we're told in the Welsh sources that the son of Pibba, who was either Penda or Eowa, requested the great king's aid, and that the Welsh king enthusiastically joined their war. But what about Gwyneth? Last time, Mercia allied with Gwyneth. So where were they? Well, some have argued that Cadwallon's son, King Cadwallad, sent forces to support Penda in his fight. So looking at all of this in context, if you ask me, I think that this was probably a war of aggression on the part of Oswald for unknown reasons. But it was galling enough to Mercia's Welsh allies that they threw their lot in with them. And isn't it surprising that Mercia was so cozy with Wales? Many of the sources give us the impression of ethnic aggression between the Germanic East and the Celtic West. But here we have Mercia fighting multiple wars with Welsh support. And all despite the fact that the Welsh were fighting against fellow Christians and in aid of a pagan kingdom. The more that we look at this material, the more apparent it is that things are never black and white at least not as black and white as some sources would like us to believe. And actually, here's how messy and gray some of these sources can be. We're told that Eowa was at the battle. However, we're not told what side he was on. And some have argued that Eowa fought with Oswald against his brother Penda and their Welsh allies. If that's true, that makes determining the cause of this war even more complex. Was Penda trying to throw off Northumbrian domination, and as a result, throwing off Eowa? And then Oswald arrived in support of Eowa, essentially to put down a rebellion and reinstate his client king? It's possible. But as always, very little from this era is clear, 
especially when it comes to Mercia. But you can kind of imagine it though, can't you? Some sort of rift forming between the two brothers, perhaps over Eowa being too friendly with Northumbria, and eventually that rift spilling out into outright violence. And while Eowa was a king, it was Penda that we hear of leading the warbands. So maybe the Weirods and Thanes mostly sided with Penda, and Eowa was forced to seek Oswald's help in his fight. And upon seeing the power of Northumbria being brought to bear upon him, Penda retreated to his old allies, the Welsh, and sought their assistance. And things finally came to a head at Mazer Field. Like I said, there's no account for why the fight happened, nor is there an affirmative statement for what side of the battle Eowa was on. But given the era, I do wonder if this was a matter of an internal dynastic struggle spiraling out of control. But whatever the case, war had come. And Penda, along with his Welsh allies, had assembled his were-odds and would let fate decide the matter. And, as was generally the case with Penda, it seems like fate was on his side. Now, the chronicle attributed to Nennius would have you believe that it wasn't fate, but rather that Penda had the devil, or at least demons, on his side. But without a detailed account of the composition of the forces and whether or not there were any Mercians that looked a bit like extras from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I can't really say for sure whether or not Nennius was right about that whole diabolical influence thing. But what I can say is that much like Hatfield Chase, the Northumbrians simply could not withstand the combined power of the Mercian and Welsh warriors. And they were cut down. Bede tells us that in the middle of the melee, with his warbands collapsing and his soldiers falling dead all around him, Oswald realized that all was lost. And he stopped fighting. And he prayed. And then, Oswald, king of Northumbria, after ruling for only eight or nine years, fell dead at Mazer Field. As did King Eowa of Mercia possibly because he was fighting on the wrong side of that battle. King Penda was now the sole ruler of Mercia, and he stood victorious over the once imposing kingdom of Northumbria. There are legends that tell of how Oswald was crucified, though those tales certainly could be myth, as they appear to have drawn upon Christian imagery. And frankly, why would Penda crucify someone unless he was going for some really dark irony? It just doesn't seem likely to me. He was pagan. And it strikes me more of a subsequent bolstering of Oswald's saintly resume rather than an actual account of what happened. Bede, however, does give us a more reliable account of this. And he tells us that Penda was, well, he was less than reverent when dealing with the corpse of his enemy. And he had Oswald's body chopped up and then placed his head and limbs on poles. And I think that has the air of truth to it. After all, you might recall from an earlier episode that the Anglo-Saxons did have a term for this. Whale sting, or dead body pole. Grim stuff, but it definitely sounds like something that an old school warrior might do. So for my money, I'm going with Bede on this one. And much like Heaven Field, it seems like people were rather struck by the loss of this king who had become rather famous for his piety. 
and were told that miracles flourished in the area where he died, which reinforces the sense of his martyring, as well as the saintly aura that Bede painted Oswald in. And actually, while we're talking about Oswald, it really is interesting that, rather than going into great detail on his martyrdom, which is how many accounts of saints tend to go, Bede sort of gives very broad highlights of that, but instead focuses heavily on his actions in life. I'm not sure what that tells us about Oswald's life, nor his death. There are all sorts of theories that you can draw from the way that Bede decides to tell that story. But I do find it very interesting that he was discussed in such a unique way. But regardless of how he died, and what was done with his body, Oswald of Northumbria was dead. And Eowa of Mercia was dead. And now Penda was truly ascendant. He had come a long way from being a mere war leader at Hatfield Chase. He was now the most powerful Mercian to date. And you can argue that, with the deaths of his rivals, he was the most powerful king in Britain. He had killed Edwin of Northumbria, a Bretwalda. He had killed King Sigebert and King Egric of East Anglia. And now he had killed King Oswald of Northumbria, who was another Bretwalda. This was a man who didn't just win battles, such as his fight with the West Saxons over the Severn Valley. No, this was a killer of kings. At least four of them, two of them being mighty Bretwaldas, commanding experienced veteran warbands, were dead. And once again, here stood King Penda, victorious on the battlefield. In a time when Christianity was overtaking the island, and kings and kingdoms were converting at an incredibly rapid pace. Here was one king who still clung to the old ways. He wasn't from a wealthy kingdom. His homeland didn't have ties with powerful allies from the continent. And he certainly didn't have the support of the church. And in many regards, Penda and Mercia stood alone against the tide. But what a stand he was making. And history has shown time and time again that a small group of motivated individuals can change the course of history. And I wonder if people were thinking that maybe Penda and his victory at Mazer Field was a sign that once again the island would be shifting towards paganism and away from Christianity. And that maybe power, which had generally escaped the Midland Kingdom, would now be centralizing there, in Mercia. However, the line of Ida should not be underestimated. And Oswald had a brother. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we have all kinds of awesome communities that you can join. We have Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, forums, you name it. And you can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.